Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Professor Brian Klass. Professor Klass is an Associate Professor of Global Politics at the University College London, where he focuses on democracy, authoritarianism, and American politics and foreign policy. He is the co-author of How to Rig an Election and the author of The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy, and The Despot's Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy. Today, we're going to focus on his new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, which will be published on November 9th. He's also the host of the Power Corrupts podcast and a contributor to the Washington Post. Brian Kloss, welcome, and thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for having me. This is just a really compelling title and book, and I want to jump right in and talk about the fundamental question that it addresses, which is, what is power? And could you share with us either your definition or some various definitions of what you think power is defined as? So the sort of political science definition of power is you know, actor A making actor B do something that actor B wouldn't otherwise do. In other words, it's about coercion. But I think that, you know, when we think about power, it's something that actually infiltrates every aspect of our daily lives, right? From decisions about who gets a promotion and who doesn't, to how you interact with a police officer or the person in charge of your neighborhood homeowners association, all the way up to the highest echelons uh, of political power in your country. So, it really defines pretty much every interaction we have. So that's why I tend not to just say this sort of political science definition, because I think we interact in, in, in a way with power in every single social engagement we have in our lives. This feels like you could even bring it down to the most granular level of two people arrive at a stop sign at the same time who's going to go first, you can argue that that's a power dynamic. And I think it's really helpful that you brought this out of just the political science definition and bring it down to our real lives. And one of the things that you talk about in the book, I know, is who or what type of person is the most likely to be able to get power? And I'm wondering, one, is there a, you know, kind of a big blanket answer to that? And two, is it situational? Does it really depend on what the environment is to try and determine what kind of person gets power? Or is it basically always the same type of actor? Yeah, it's a great question with a really big answer. So I'll try to just sort of give you a, f- a few tastes of it because it's uh, like 100 pages of the book. <laughs> but so yeah, basically, this the, the, the question comes down to, first off, who seeks power, right? So some people really crave power and some people don't. Uh, I look into the book in some ways, whether that's genetic, uh, whether there are actually power genes. And there is some evidence to suggest that part of the explanation is actually that ambition is a inherited trait. It's not all of it, but we know it is in the animal kingdom in some species. And there is some evidence in humans that this is true as well. There's studies that use identical twins and look at leadership 
and try to find out whether there's some sort of power drive that's happening. And some researchers have suggested that they've isolated an actual gene that causes people to seek leadership more. Now, the problem is, how do you disentangle that from who actually gets leadership, right? Because we have plenty of people who might want power, who are stymied by the fact that we have you know, a sexist or misogynistic culture or a racist culture and so on. So some of those studies may actually be capturing some of the demographic factors that are tied to society. And then there's also other things like, you know, studies that show that narcissists make much more money than other people or that psychopaths in the right conditions are able to obtain power. And then there's questions about why do we give power to the wrong people? So this is one of the areas of the book that I found the most interesting when I was researching it. And what was fascinating about it is that we tend to bestow power because power is relational, right? You can't just seize it for yourself. Somebody has to give it to you as well, usually. In those instances, there are studies that show that we give power based on the most superficial reasons sometimes. So there's one study that was published in Nature where they looked at a a group of, of children and they showed them randomly, seemingly randomly, two faces. And they said, who do you want to captain your ship? Right. This is just for it's a kid's exercise on a computer simulation. And the kids picked, you know, of the two options based solely on their faces. Who did they want to be the captain of their ship? What the kids didn't know is that the two faces they were given were both the winner and the runner up of a recent French election in which the the, the sort of constituency had the winner and the, and the runner up. And they saw both faces. And with about 80 percent accuracy, the kids picked the winner just based on the faces. Right. So it suggests that actually adults are making decisions based on superficial characteristics as well. And this carries over into things like uh, cross-cultural issues. So one of the chapters of the book is called um, The Power Delusion. And I open it by talking about the white guy in a tie industry in China, where I interviewed a guy who quite literally was hired to pretend to be a factory executive at this new factory in Dongying in, in China, simply because he was white and he was wearing a tie and it gave credibility to the factory in the eyes of the local press and the local investors. And so he was given this sort of knockoff Dolce & Gabbana vest to wear around the factory where he would pretend to inspect it twice a day. And then he spoke at uh, the opening, the ribbon cutting ceremony. And there was even a case where a white guy in the tie in China was drafted to be a fake country musician for a grand opening ceremony. So the point is that there are a series of different aspects to who gets power that starts with who seeks it, then it goes to who actually obtains it, and then also why do we give it to the wrong people on such superficial characteristics? I could go on, but I'll I'll let you move on to your next question because I'll just keep rambling otherwise. No, those are all my questions. So in fact, um, we can just break them up now by me asking them, but I the last thing you said about um, you know, the white guy in the tie, it does make me wonder, and I don't know if this could hold true because of what you just said about the kids, but how much of this is based on what we've been conditioned to think of as the powerful person based on television and advertisements and books and magazines, and or how much of it is just innate. I mean, do we just look at a certain type of face or do we, from a very young age, before we've ever seen a television show, look at the, I mean, the stereotype is always in presidential politics that the taller person wins. Do we look at the person who looks taller and stronger or is this a result of things that we see in the media or maybe a little bit of both? 
That is a great question. And so this is where the, the book's research goes back into sort of evolutionary history uh, and looks at the Stone Age origins of human brains. One of the things that evolutionary biologists and evolutionary psychologists focus on is that our brains have not changed that much in the last couple hundred thousand years. So that we basically have sort of a Stone Age mind in the modern era. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that if you think about the whole span of human history, a couple hundred thousand years, being a big, strong person has been an evolutionary survival advantage for about 99.9% of our history, right? In other words, being a big guy, basically, who can hunt uh, effectively has helped you stay alive. Now, that is not true anymore, thankfully, right? We, we have ironed that out in a way where uh, we, we reward and we survive based on human collaboration and cooperation, and you don't just have to be the biggest, strongest person to get ahead in life. So that's wonderful. But the problem is our brains haven't adapted to that. So there's a lot of evidence in evolutionary psychology that we still have this bias when we're selecting leaders for people who are bigger and stronger seeming. And this is why you have things like Vladimir Putin posting photos of himself shirtless, which is a totally bizarre thing. I mean, imagine if you went to the doctor and you were trying to pick a surgeon and they did 20 push-ups to show you their prowess. I mean, you would think they were a lunatic and find another doctor. But when we elect people, these shows of strength do actually sometimes matter. And what's really interesting is that when they do studies on this, they find that the effect is magnified if you have a moment of crisis, which is precisely why that whole strongman element, and the, the term is not an accident, we don't have strong women in, in when we talk about authoritarian leaders typically, is because they often manufacture crises knowing that that will activate this sort of desire for the template in our brain of looking for that stronger, bigger person. Now, the point I make in the book is that even though that may be true, right, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest this is true, it doesn't have to be the way we pick leaders, right? If we're aware of this stupid cognitive bias that we have, we can overcome it. And so that's one of the things that I grapple with in writing this was that some people claim that these biases are natural, but they're not natural. It's just that our world used to be basically maladapted to picking leaders who were not big and strong. Now we've evolved beyond that. Our brains haven't caught up. And it's time that we start to think more carefully and more deliberately about the kinds of leaders we select rather than replicating these sort of stupid cognitive biases that are rooted in our Stone Age brains. So I want to get to how do we think more carefully, but, and you brought this up. I was thinking about this in your answer and then you brought it up. You said the strong man is not a coincidence. We don't say strong person. And so I'm wondering how much of what you're describing does play a role in terms of gender disparity of our elected officials, the people who are business leaders, leaders of law firms, um, we know that there's huge gender disparity when it comes to leaders in both the public and private sector. And how much of it do you think roots back to this idea of who we think of as the person who can be trusted in a crisis? I mean, as we're having this conversation, I just can't stop thinking about Andrew Cuomo, who I think in so many ways physically tries to inhabit that strong man persona. And of course it crumbled and now um, his Lieutenant governor, a woman is taking over for him. And obviously we're going to have to see how that goes, but how much of the success of people like Andrew Cuomo and 
the lack of success for a lot of women who I think are well-qualified is based on these innate kind of stone age mind preconditions that we have. Yeah. So it's a mix. One of the things that I was careful about when I wrote the book is I don't want to suggest that all of this comes down to these sort of stone age cognitive biases, because there's a lot of learned and internalized cultural misogyny and racism as well. Right. So I think they basically play on each other and exacerbate the effect. Now you're absolutely right that the demographic skew uh, in positions of power is atrocious. If you look at Fortune 500 CEOs, right, half the population is men, but 94% of Fortune 500 CEOs are men. Uh, when you look at white people, so white men plus white women, 60% of the U.S. population fits the bill, 92% of Fortune 500 CEOs. Then you get into Latino women and Latino men, 9% each, 2% of Latino men at Fortune 500 CEOs, 0% Latino women, not a single one, right? Similar numbers for black men, 6.5% of the population, 0.8% of CEOs, and no black women who are CEOs. And the numbers are similar in places like the UK. Uh, and this compounds the issue in a lot of ways that we don't always anticipate in recruitment going forward, because there's a, a UK politician who refers to this as the snowy peaks and the vanilla boys problem, and basically says, look, if you're, if you're a talented woman or a talented person of color who's trying to make your career in one of these companies, and you look up, and all you see the same is true in politics, and all you see is the sort of vanilla boys club, right? You might think, maybe I'll go to a startup. Maybe I won't go into the big companies. And it exacerbates it with the self-selection effect out of the places where you don't see people like yourself. And then there's also some really, really messed up stuff that a lot of these studies have started to show. One of them you, you referenced already about the height thing. Uh, and in times of crisis, this, this height effect does get magnified. Uh, one Australian politician named Hajnal Ban uh, read research about this, a woman who was aspiring to become an MP, and she had her legs broken and artificially stretched to become three inches uh, taller. And, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I think probably wasn't necessary. She would have won anyway. But, but you know, thinking about this, this, this aspect. And then one of the other things that I found really difficult to write about was this idea of what's called baby faceness. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that white people, based on either racism or these cognitive biases that are longstanding, tend to view black people as more of a threat when they have less baby-faced faces, okay? And this creates a totally, totally messed up paradox where in Fortune 500 companies or in the corporate world or in politics, people who are white and baby-faced aren't taken as seriously because they're not viewed as strong enough, whereas people who are black and baby-faced are viewed as less of a threat to the white majority and therefore end up climbing the corporate ladder or getting elected more easily. Now, again, this is very difficult to talk about in the sense that, you know, th this is what the evidence seems to suggest in these studies. And I think that it's worth bringing up into the open to say, if this is true, if this seems to be the case based on double-blind randomized research trials, how do we fix it, right? Rather than pretending that it doesn't exist. And so there are a huge number of both cognitive biases and racist and sexist tropes that exist in our culture that hold back people who are less likely to be represented in the halls of power. So now that all the listeners, myself included, are wildly depressed thinking about all of these kind of built-in, baked-in reasons why we do have 
uh, racial disparities, gender disparities, when it comes to people in power. You've mentioned a couple of times now versions of how do we fix it? You said, let's think more carefully. How do we overcome this bias? I want to come back to this at the end a little bit, but could you preview for us now, how do we get out of this? I mean, what does think more carefully about this mean for people who are listening and want to help us improve and have more of a meritocracy, not not a situation where we're electing the person who looks like they could you know, carry us across a river as opposed to be really careful in a pandemic? Yeah, so this is about the last third of corruptible. And it's something that I, when I set out, you know, the easy part was sort of diagnosing the problem. Um, the, the harder part is, is fixing it. And I think that there's a few things, just to give an example, there's, you know, there's many, many more that I write about, but just to, to give a few examples. One problem that we know exists that's based on most likely just cultural racism and misogyny is that when you send out uh, CVs of people that are identical, but you change the name on the top, whether it's a man or a woman's name or a a black sounding or white sounding name, that you get different rates of asking people for interviews or getting the job uh, offered to them, et cetera, et cetera, even though they have the exact same CV, exactly the same qualifications. So one of the things that 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 brings to mind is how much more can we anonymize selection procedures? Now, where I teach at University College London, everything that I grade is anonymized. Everything, right? I never know which student I'm grading when it comes to essays. Now, that's really nice to do, but it's also not enough because the students who make it to an elite school like University College London are also getting spit out of schools where these gender and race biases may be inadvertently showing up in the grades of their teachers much, much earlier, right? And in plenty of countries, students get tracked by the time they're like 10 years old. So if you have a biased teacher when you're eight or nine years old, who's grading your stuff and is grading you down based on these sort of implicit biases, that can affect your life chances. So my point is that we have to start very early on these uh, interventions and and really rethink how we promote people and how we recruit people. one other quick example that, that I talk about in the book that's really, I think, the one that I found most, most interesting was related to police abuse, um, but it also gets back to this problem of racial and, and gender bias. So in the United States, there's one department outside of Atlanta that I found just amazing. The recruitment video is basically, it looks like a special forces recruitment video, right? It's like these guys in a tank that drive through, it's heavy metal music. They throw a bunch of grenades out of the tank. This town has like 20,000 people, right? It's like like their, their biggest threat is like the Home Depot. It's this tiny little place. And yet they're trying to recruit like it's a war zone. So who are you going to get as the police officers? You're going to get people who want to patrol a war zone. Now, that's not as likely to be women uh, because it doesn't look like a welcoming environment for for women because this is something where it's a bunch of guys in army fatigues with extremely masculine tropes in the video. And so New Zealand uh, took that lesson and internalized it, right? And so what they did is they've run a recruitment campaign for their national police force that is extremely inclusive and funny and welcoming and all about community orientation. And it's worked masterfully. Their numbers of applicants have risen dramatically in underrepresented 
communities. Their demographic diversity has rapidly increased. And as a result, the community policing organization looks much more like the community than in just about every U.S. police force. And so one of the things that I have been arguing for, for, for a while with this police debate is a lot of this debate is about what the police do. My argument is we need to think about who the police are. And that's true for everything, for politics, for business, for policing, for all these things is we have to stop just thinking about how to make bad people behave better. We need to get better people into positions of power and have it be more diverse from the beginning. That is something where recruitment is crucial to improving this problem. It's so interesting that you talk about this. I also grade, almost all my classes are graded anonymously. And it for me, it's just such an enormous relief because I know that I don't have to worry about not even bias, which I'm sure I should I think I shouldn't be worried about, but perhaps I should be, but just, oh, I know this person and they've, this is their best. They've tried so hard or, oh, I know this person and this isn't their best. I mean, let alone all of the biases that would have come to that point of even a person who can get to law school in the first place. And your discussion about the recruitment video, it reminds me of, I've heard so often lately that um, the way we interview to be a member of a elite musical group, for instance, is that we now interview based on uh, closing off a curtain so that you just listen to people as opposed to you see the violinist and that it creates so much more diversity when it's a blind interview. Um, And, and I think you you've really hit on something that we need to be a lot more careful, not just in terms of what the actions are, but who we pick to take those actions at all. And so having now had this very lengthy conversation, I'll go back, I think, to what was my second planned question of the interview, which is, um, you know, we've talked about what the definition of power is and how it creates all of these disparities in our society and some of the solutions. And I'm wondering if you noticed once people obtain some level of power, is there something similar that most people do? Is there some action that people take once they achieve that kind of big step? Is it that the first thing everybody does is, okay, now how do I insulate myself and make sure I can keep power? Or is it now I'm going to try and enforce my agenda? Do you see any patterns of like what happens the moment you you know get on that stage or step on that next plateau yeah so power is literally like a drug uh to to the human body and and i'll start by talking a little bit about the actual physical effects and then the mental ones um the physical effects are really interesting because you can't usually test this very easily in human beings by just sort of randomly assigning power to them. You can try to do it in a lab, but it's not the same thing as actually becoming a CEO. But they can do it in monkeys. So what they've done in these in these experiments uh, where I interviewed one of these guys uh, at Wake Forest was they have these, these macaque monkeys where uh, basically they're, they're in groups of four. And they immediately set up at a hier- they set out a hierarchy. So it's clear who's the first, second, third, and fourth in the hierarchy. And then what they do is after they've set up this hierarchy, they offer the monkeys the choice between, with a special device, the choice between cocaine intravenously or uh, banana pellets. And what's really interesting about this uh, is that the powerful monkeys don't take the cocaine. 
they take the banana pellets. The weak monkeys self-medicate with the cocaine. And this happens, they can repeat this experiment, they can take the powerful monkeys, put them in a new group, they become submissive, all of a sudden they take the cocaine. So what, what that research is trying to look at is what are the effects of being powerless in society and how does it affect our physical well-being? And there's, there's another study that looks at how uh, civil servants in the UK, how their health declined significantly depending on how quickly their careers advanced, where they took like-for-like people, they entered the civil service at the same time, their pay was roughly the same. The ones who advanced more actually got healthier and lived longer uh, than the ones who didn't. So there's there's a series of physical changes that are tied to power. Then there's the mental side, which I say acts like a drug. You get what's called illusory control, where you think that you can control things that you can't. So one great experiment of this was they said, look, um, we're going to give you some benefit based on whether you roll a bunch of sixes or not in a dice roll. You can do it yourself, or you can have somebody else roll the dice for you. Now, this is completely random, right? It doesn't matter whether I throw the dice or you do. We're going to get roughly the same number of sixes. The powerful people insist on rolling the dice because they believe that they can actually affect it. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of research on this. And what I did in, in the book's research as well was I spoke to people, I, I conducted about 500 interviews with powerful people, and the one that stood out to me was a woman named Ma'anan Sheila, who was the sort of right-hand woman to a cult leader, uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Uh, if, if, if you've, there's a famous Netflix uh, documentary called Wild Wild Country, in which she features very prominently. And basically, you know, she was this normal person, an aspiring art student, uh, when she was like 18, 19 years old, consolidates power through this cult leader. And before her downfall ends up orchestrating the poisoning of a thousand people in an attempt to rig a county level election in Oregon. I mean, you know, I met with her now, she's in charge of a care home in Switzerland, and is in charge of like dozens of, you know, ill people. And is not doing anything to them at all. She's she's perfectly normal and hasn't committed any crime since. And it's one of these things where you're like, okay, she was normal. She got massive amounts of power. She became the worst bioterrorist in U.S. history. Now she is normal again. And there's a lot of psychological research to, to back up that that's not just an anecdote, that that actually does happen to people as they climb the ladder and become more powerful. I have to say, having this conversation, my mom is a psychologist, she has a PhD, and we talk about these issues. And I know that she's going to be so excited to hear this conversation and, and to read the book. And I feel at least slightly better suited to be able to think through these issues, because it really is the intersection of psychology and policy and sociology. And there's so many things that go into these complex systems that we've set up. And I think what you described does bring up the next question that we've kind of touched on, which is that the through line in so many political, philosophical, sociological questions is, does power corrupt or corrupt people drawn to power? And you touched on this a little bit, but I'm hoping maybe you can emphasize a little bit more. I mean, I'm thinking back to sitting in ancient history in seventh grade and uh, my teacher saying you know, absolute power can corrupt absolutely. And so I'm hoping you can talk through that uh, what's become a cliche a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's how I sort of start the book out with that question. And look, the short answer is that power does corrupt, but it's probably the least interesting part of the power debate. 
And what I mean by that is that we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. We're focusing on the people who already have power and deciding what it does to them. We're not thinking as often about who didn't get power. And I think that's an absolutely crucial question that I spend a lot of time discussing. And one of the best ways to sort of frame this discussion is, is what I talk about, I think, in the introduction of the book, which is everybody has heard or many people have heard about the Stanford prison experiment, which is the, the classic sort of example of power corrupting. This is where, you know, you have this experiment in which students are put into a position of either prisoner or guard. And apparently the, the, the prison guards become abusive very quickly. And it's used to show that power corrupts anyone, even ordinary people. There's a study that hasn't really gotten any attention that I found uh, that looks at the wording of the recruitment question for the Stanford prison experiment. And it says specifically, you know, we're going to pay you this much money for a study of prison life. Okay. So these guys who are looking at this study decide to replicate the questionnaire or the, or the sort of recruitment ad in local newspapers in, in more modern college towns in the 2000s. And they do one version with for a study of prison life, and they do one version for a psychology study. Then they compare who responds to the ad. Everything else is identical, right? And what they found was that the people who responded to the ad about prison life were much more Machiavellian, much more narcissistic, much more psychopathic on all the measures that come than the one that was generic. And so what I think that shows is actually the Stanford prison experiment lesson is completely wrong. <laughs> the, the exact opposite of the lesson is what we should learn from that, which is that when you have certain positions like prison life or prison guards, you're going to attract people for whom it's attractive to be in a position of authority. And those people are often going to be disproportionately into wielding power for the sake of abuse or control or the things that we don't want to give power to people for. And so I think the biggest takeaway from the book is that we have to think way more carefully about how we end up determining who's in power. Yes, power does have this you know, sort of addictive property. It does have this sort of mental effect and physical effect like I just talked about. But there's so much more that we need to focus on on who's not getting power because that's the source of much more of our social problems, in my opinion, than the people who get there and then are, are probably already a bit corruptible and then just get corrupted by power as opposed to finding incorruptible people who would, even though they might be tempted to, to abuse people a little bit more once in power, would be far, far better at wielding it. And I think that's the part of the debate that hasn't been had in a lot of these discussions about political abuse, uh, you know, companies with scandals and of course with police abuse and things like that. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, how do we better find those incorruptible people? You've provided so many helpful examples. And I think that's just so useful to the listeners. It's not just to think about these concepts in, to, in the abstract, but to think through like police recruiting, for instance, you just talked about dirty politicians. And you've convinced me that much of this can be solved by finding the good people and putting them in positions of power. And we talked through that a little bit, but are there some more specific ways that you think we can all go out and either do this or support people in doing this? Yes. And that's, so there, there's a chapter in the book called Attracting the Incorruptible. And, and I try to sort of say, how, how would we actually get people who don't normally seek power into positions of power? 
Because that's really the whole ballgame, right? Most There's a self-selection problem. People who want power for the wrong reasons are disproportionately likely to seek power. So that's a, that's a huge problem. They're also disproportionately effective at getting at. And, and, I, and I've got a whole discussion about how psychopaths are very, very good at rising through the corporate ladder. Now, first thing you need to do is you need to get more applicants. And that's a crucial part of this. There's, there's a series of police departments, to go back to police just briefly, in Alaska one one township in particular in which 100% of the police officers are felons, right? 100%. Every single one of them has a criminal rap sheet and for substantial crimes, right? Like violent assaults. And the reason for this is because nobody else applied. So they decided, well, you know, we'd rather have a cop that's a dirty cop than no cop at all. And I think that's an extreme example, but that often happens in some of these lower level positions of power that end up becoming the higher positions of power. Mm. Another way that we can do this that I think is really worth considering is I don't believe that society should go to uh, what the ancient Greeks did in Athens where they, they have citizen assemblies that are chosen randomly by lot. But I think that that approach can work as oversight. So one way that I propose doing this is basically in a, in a company, for example, you've got a board of directors. You should have a shadow board of directors that's randomly pulled from the company's employees. And on the major decisions that are being reached by the board, the shadow board should independently come to its own conclusions, right? I think this would also yield some substantial benefits for the company itself, not just for you know better governance, but also avoiding all the pitfalls of people who are blinded by short-term quarterly returns. And I think the same should happen with with Congress, right? I think there should be citizen assemblies that, you know, for example, they're given either 10 issues per year to look at, or they're consulted on a snap basis and they're randomly selected from the population and they issue reports and they say, here's why we thought this, uh, this was the right solution to the problem. Now, Congress would be under no obligation to follow that, but at least it would provide some level of a check on Congress to say, here's how, you know, a, a thousand well-meaning citizens thought through this problem. Everyone could look at it. I know this sounds a bit unrealistic, but I think that given how how dystopian some of our politics has become, it's worth considering some of these outside the box uh, ideas that could actually yield some really substantial benefits through oversight rather than replacing decision makers. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I, when I think about political reform and how to better get quote unquote good policy outcomes I've thought about adding a layer of decision makers or bureaucracy, and I've always kind of rejected it thinking it's just one more layer, but it's not necessarily a better layer. But I think what you described is just substantively and qualitatively different and makes a lot of sense as just a check against what you've described as really a dystopian reality when it comes to our elected officials and our political systems in so many ways. And I think, um, that is probably for a different conversation between us. But you have mentioned two things that I I just think are so interesting, and I wanted to get back to them before we end our conversation, which is, I think you've mentioned a couple of times now that psychopaths are good at rising through the corporate ladder. Could you talk through that with us a little bit? Yeah. So uh, the, the chapter that I talk about psychopathy uh, opens with a, a really fascinating case of actually a janitor in uh, in New York State who ended up rising to the top echelons of the school district through a fear campaign that ended up with him basically planting explosives on his colleagues' cars 
uh, and manipulating every part of the school district. It was it's it's an amazing story, and the point that that is supposed to show is that psychopaths can be ruthless at obtaining power, but he's also in jail, right? And one of the points that happen whenever you talk to a psychopathy expert, they, they make the same point: the psychopaths that you heard of, you've heard of are the unsuccessful psychopaths. They're the ones who could not blend in when they needed to. And one of the things about psychopathy that's that's very dangerous and very effective about it is that they're like social chameleons, right? They, they, they're very good at becoming who they think you want them to be. And so in a job interview, it is a tailor-made environment for a psychopath, um, which, you know, when we were talking about recruitment before, it's, you know, you're right that the sort of the blind violin recital, that would solve the problem. The blind job interview wouldn't completely solve that problem because psychopaths are very good talkers and they're very good at sort of becoming what the interviewer wants to hear. So there's a lot of research that shows that what's called the dark triad, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy, if they're managed in the sort of middle levels can be very, very effective at causing people to rise the ranks. Now, if they're at the extreme levels, if you turn all the dials up, you end up with Ted Bundy, right? So you end up with, with someone who ends up in jail because they can't control their impulses. But there's a lot of research that shows that the upper echelons of corporate America and likely politics are substantially overpopulated by psychopaths. Um, so, you know, <laughs> again, this is one of those things where you, you sort of have to think not just about the people in power and how to make them behave better, how can we stop psychopaths from getting into power? That would be a better question, in my opinion. Which comes back to your thesis, or one of your main points here, I think, which is to try and get the right people in positions of power, as opposed to try and reforming the system once the bad people are already in positions of power. And to move to a different um psychological problem from psychopaths to narcissists. I've also heard you mention now a couple of times that narcissists are really good at making money. And I think that probably is just fascinating for a lot of people. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you came to that conclusion? Yeah. So this is actually, it's a, it's a series of research studies that look at narcissism and track it over time and look at lifetime earnings. Um, and they, they found a strong correlation between narcissism and uh, future pay. Now, again, this is one of those things that's complex because narcissism sometimes goes along with other dark triad traits, the ones I mentioned, Machiavellianism and, and psychopathy. And if narcissism is in isolation, it can actually be very beneficial because people are so attuned to how others perceive them that they end up becoming quite likable. Um, and and this, this also plays into something we haven't talked about very much, which is how much systems really matter and how these traits play out. So there's a, there's a psychologist who's you know, one of the top researchers on power in the world named Dacher Keltner uh, at UC Berkeley. And this my, la- my last trip before the pandemic was out to, to visit him and his colleagues in their, their sort of power lab out there. And one of, the th- one of the things he argues in his book, The Power Paradox, is that being likable helps you rise to the top. But then when you get to the top, you end up falling into the trap of power's temptations. Now, the point I made to him, which he actually agreed with, and I think you know, it's, it's, it's to his credit as a scientist that he's very willing to have his, his opinions questioned, was I said, that makes some sense to me if you're in a highly regulated structure like a US Fortune 500 company, right? But like when I'm interviewing people who work for the army in Madagascar or are who are henchmen of the dictator in Belarus. 
the world doesn't work that way. Being a good guy doesn't help you get to the top, right? So the systems dramatically are, are, are determining what traits are beneficial. In a US system, in a good company that's well overseen with good HR policies, narcissism, in which it's not defective, uh, it's not it's not it's not so much narcissism that you can't focus on anything else, but a, a small dose of it where you care about what your colleagues think of you can help you rise through the corporate ladder. So I think, you know, again, just in that example, it's like that was what I was trying to tease through in the book is how do you differentiate between psychological traits, then uh, ambition and then systems? Right. And these things are not straight correlations of one to one, but they if they have the right interplay, they can pan out in ways that that end up yielding uh, higher salaries. And I'm so glad that you talked about it in that way. And there's so many things that you're right. You just can't disentangle, but you walked us through, I think there's really important factors and almost everybody listening, I'm going to guess has at some point been in a workplace and wondered how did this person get hired? How did this person get ahead? Or I wish I could do what this person is doing. And I want to actually go down a little bit more to the granular level and maybe for the substance of the interview and with this, if there was somebody who was going to run for office and they are a woman of color and they want to run for higher office, let's say for the presidency, based on all of your research, on your exhaustive research of what power is and how people get power and how people become popular, are there things that you would look at and say to, I mean, let's, I just unwittingly described Kamala Harris, the female person of color who likely will be a presidential candidate. Are there some things that, you know, before we can go through this process of thinking through changing systems, which is going to take a lot of time, are there some things that you would say to her or to us, the voters, about things that we could consider to allow her or somebody like her to be successful and get us again out of this stone age paradigm? That is a, an excellent question and a very difficult one because these are long-term challenges and they're going to be, they're going to require long-term solutions. They're not going to change overnight. What I would say to someone like Kamala Harris is that you have to acknowledge that these biases exist. And I'm sure she has, right? I mean, I, I'm not trying to be patronizing here, but I just mean that in the system where these things do exist, you have to behave as though a certain segment of the population is not going to give you a fair shake. They're not going to give you a fair shake based on the merits. They're not going to give you a fair shake based on demographics. They're going to look at you differently because of those things you can't change. So when you're plotting a political strategy, if you're being pragmatic, you can try to take the high road and just say, I'm not going to think about any of that. I'm going to just try to run my campaign and win on the merits. Now, I think, unfortunately, that's probably not realistic because in order to change the system, you have to obtain power. I mean, that's one of the things that's really, I think, quite terrible about the message of the, of the book in a way is that it's a very hopeful book and says we can solve these problems. But in the short term, we need powerful people to be allies in stopping these systems from dysfunctioning like this uh, and, and I, from being dysfunctional like this. And I think that that's something where, you know, you'd have to have a team of strategists who think, okay, let's imagine we've got a guy in you know, rural America who tends to agree with you on the issues, but can't see past his implicit biases or explicit biases, biases against you. How do you win that person? 
And I think that has to be a very big society-wide conversation about the double standards that exist for candidates who don't look like the quote-unquote powerful person that typically inhabits these positions of authority. I wish I had a better answer because you know it would be wonderful if you could come up with this sort of silver bullet. And I think that the, the unsatisfying reality, and this is something that I grapple with when writing this book, is that it is extremely complicated. And mm-hmm. understanding yeah. it is half the battle. Fixing it is going to be a long, long process. Brian Kloss, author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I could talk to you about these issues all day. I know that I need to let you go after we end with the three questions that we end all of our podcasts with because we learned so much from you. I'd like to learn just a little bit more about you. Question number one, which famous person dead or alive would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Okay. So I'm going to answer this question slightly differently. What I would love to do is I, I would expect love nothing to, less. <laughs> I would love to teleport a stone age person to the modern era not a specific famous person. And that's what I was doing the research for this book. I was like, you know, you always think about, well, I always think about at least which person would I like to bring to the modern age to show that they're still famous, right? Because there's like a lot of people who died in obscurity and, and we still read their books or their paintings are still in museums. So I think that would be quite fun. What I think would be great is to bring a stone age person to like a modern supermarket, you know, Costco and show them the cereal aisle, <laughs> have dinner with them after going shopping there. Because I think that's one of the things that I've realized in this book is how different our lives are from just about every other human being who's ever lived. That was one of the things that was so striking about looking for the 200,000 years of history is we are such unbelievable outliers. And so that's, I know I'm sort of doing a cop out and not picking a specific famous person, but I would love to bring a stone age hunter gatherer to 2021 and sit him down for dinner. As a lawyer, I'm going to have to move to strike as non-responsive, but as a podcast interview, I I love that answer. And so we'll keep it. Now, next question. Um, And this brings us to maybe hunting and gathering a little bit, uh, but you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Oh, goodness. Uh, That is a good question. I'm going to answer this question very, very boringly. And it's going to be malt loaf, which is the most bland food ever, but it's the most nutritionally dense. And I used to eat it all the time when I was a competitive rower, (laughs) because that is a very pragmatic answer to that question and would keep me alive the longest. That is so depressingly pragmatic. You're exactly right. And finally, I am not, I'm not a food motivated person. I would not be a black lab if I was a dog. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, you might Pick a pragmatic answer for this one. You get one superpower for one hour. What is it? I would want to teleport. I would really want to teleport. Yeah, I, I love traveling. I, one hour is such a such an annoying thing. Now, my 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 favorite version of this question. My favorite version of this question is: Where would you live if you could teleport? Because that's where you should live. Well, let's answer that question. Oh, fine. Okay, so I would live in the in a very remote part of the mountains. <laughs> I love mountains and I I wish I could live in them, but it's not practical. Now, was that a power play for you to undermine all of my questions, but give, in fact, very insightful and fascinating answers? Well, maybe we'll leave that to the listeners. 
Professor Brian Klass, author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, a book that will be published on November 9th. I want to recommend it to all the listeners. It's an absolutely fascinating read. You can find Brian on Twitter at Brian Kloss, K-L-A-A-S. He has a website, brianpkloss.com. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Prod. Brian, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me and sorry to uh, not answer your questions. I so appreciate that you gave your own answers to your own questions. I'm not kidding. And we wish all of our listeners a great day.